The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. It's good to be with you after being sick for a little bit. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. This is where we'll be as we go through the book of Ephesians together. We'll take a little break from Ephesians, though, next week and also Easter Sunday, as well as Good Friday, to focus on Easter story together, so we look forward uh, to that. But this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1, just looking at verses 11 through uh, 14 together. In my office, one of the things I'm doing and going through Ephesians, I actually have about seven commentaries on Ephesians that I've been reading through. Uh, each section as we go along. I try to do this regularly. Along with that, I, I try to listen to a couple sermons each week on the passage that we'll be looking at from some pastors that I, I trust and have enjoyed. And it's been really good to see as we go, go through the, all these different commentaries that span hundreds of years, it's really good to see uh, the agreement throughout history in the church on Ephesians. And on this section, it's really, I know, comforting for me as I I read that, and I hope it is for you as well as you hear that. But one of the books that I I read this past week, I borrowed it actually from from Pastor Spencer there. He could afford it. I guess I couldn't. I just steal his books is what I do all the time. Or he had them given to him. I don't know. Uh, But it's from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a, a pastor. He died in the 80s, and I really have enjoyed his commentary on Ephesians, and I just wanted to mention that before we dive in too much, because it was really helpful in me preparing this sermon here this morning, just how he structured it and the truth setter within it as well. So I'm thankful for him and that book there. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll just read verses 11 through 14. And as we read it, remember, this is the end of a sentence that started in verse 3. It's a really long sentence. It'd be the one you don't want your teacher to say you have to write on the board a hundred times. You don't want this one. So beginning in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we dive into this, verses 11 through 12, Paul uses the term we, the pronoun we, in this section, again, in verses 11 and 12. And this we is important for us to grasp because when Paul says this, he's talking about him and the Jewish people. Right? That's who he's referring to when he says we. You might say, well, how do, you, how do you gather that? How do you get that? Well, in verse 13, he says in him, you. He changed it now, so there's like a, a separation there. And he's writing to the Ephesians, and he's talking to Gentiles. He's writing to a church of Gentile people. And so that is the distinction that is taking place here. And we need to notice that because as Paul's been talking in this section, He's been talking about the mystery of his will. If you remember that in verse 9, it mentions that, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This mystery of this will is that God was going to bring together Jew and Gentile in Christ 
through salvation in him. This is this great mystery that is taking place, the salvation that we have in Jesus. But we know that when we read scripture, when we go back to Genesis, when we go back to the Old Testament, that God did first choose the Jewish people, right? If we do a quick little lesson on that, if you, you could read Genesis to get all of this if you want to see it. But we see with the story of Abraham, that God calls out to Abraham there in Genesis, early on in Genesis, and says, I have chosen you, and from your offspring will be my people, and it'll be great many people, right? He tells Abraham all of this. And so out of that, Abraham has a son, Isaac. God promises again to Isaac that he has chosen him. Isaac has Esau and Jacob. Out of that, he chooses Jacob, the second one that was born of the twins there. And so then from Jacob, we see that Jacob marries Leah, marries Rachel. And then from Jacob, God actually then wrestles with Jacob, changes his name to Israel. And then out of Israel, out of that, out of Jacob there, we get the 12 tribes of Israel that we see in the Old Testament. And then after that, we see that God gives them the law through Moses, gives them land. There's more covenants with David, with Moses. And when we read the story of Israel, the people that God chose, the Jewish people, we see over and over again them doing good things, but also them doing bad things. We see them falling. We see them failing. We see them blatantly disobeying God. We see them not obeying the law. But yet what we also see is God never leaving them. God, through all of that, continuing to love them, continuing to call them his people, continuing to wrap his arms around them and care for them. And we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 49, through verse 5 through 6, we, see, we start to see that God has a plan all along with Israel that even goes beyond, really goes beyond Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 through 6, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so we see really all along in God's plan, it wasn't just Israel, it wasn't just the Jewish people, but it was really all nations that God was going to gather to him, but he was going to use Israel as a light to the nations. We also must remember that Jesus himself was a Jew. He was of Israel, and he ministered to the Jewish people. I want to read for you a little section of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 15, because this one has always been very intriguing to me, because Jesus, just to be frank, comes across really rude in this section and we have to wonder why, but I think it's helpful to carry on uh, what we're talking about here. In Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, I mean, we can stop there for a second because this already doesn't seem like the Jesus we know. A woman comes to him and is crying out, my, my, my daughter is possessed, help me, and he seems to ignore her. That seems very unloving. It seems very unkind. And then the disciples ratcheted up a, a notch. Could you get this crazy lady out of here? 
Tell her to leave us alone. She keeps crying out and is really getting on our nerves. And so then Jesus comes in, verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's a problem for all of us in here. Because we are not of the house of Israel uh, by lineage, lineage. We're not Jewish people. It says, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So we see this interaction with Jesus and a Gentile woman. And what we see is we're seeing the walls being broken down of what Jesus really has come to do. He came to minister to the Jews. He came to be a Jew. That had to happen. That needed to take place. God had chosen the Jews. And so Jesus' whole ministry, much of it, most of it, was all dealing with Jewish people. But we know certain accounts where it wasn't. And this was one of them. We see that dividing wall being broken down. We see Jesus actually being a light to the nations as the Jewish people was supposed to be. But Paul didn't end right with just the we section. He then started to talk about the you section. So when we look at verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So here we see the great mystery being unfolded that the Gentiles are going to be part of this plan that the Jewish people were promised a long, long time ago. And the fact that it's Paul who is saying this is actually really astounding because we've talked extensively about Paul and his background. He, of all Jewish people, would have really hated all the Gentiles, any of them. They were unclean. They were filthy. They were disgusting. He, they were heathens. They were, not, they were separated from God. They were not chosen. And now here you have Paul talking about this great mystery and saying, no, to you also this promise has been given. And you can be sealed with the Holy Spirit as well. Right, that God is doing this. And so here, got Paul talking about the mystery of God, that all men are called by him unto salvation. Jesus would speak of this with the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember that story. I don't want to read it. But Jesus would talk to her and say, a day is coming. Remember, a, a day is coming. Worship on the mountain, worship over there. It's in your heart. Right, Talking about how God is going to come and to reconcile all these things. And Jesus knew it was going to be through him. So through Jesus and his work and the salvation, this was made possible to all people, to all people. You remember, though, before Jesus would ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he would, he would ascend into heaven, we're, we're told by Luke there that he would tell him to, to go back into the town. I'll just read it. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He didn't tell those who were present at that moment saying, just, just go to Jerusalem, care about the Jewish people, tell them I'm the Messiah that they've been waiting for because then, then we're going to move on. Uh, we see here, no, to all the earth. All the earth needs to hear this. All the earth needs to know what I have done for them, right? The promise that has been made here through my death, my burial, my resurrection. And so again, you do see that progression though. Go back into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. We still see that kind of the Jewish people chosen first, right? Chosen from the beginning and now walking over to the Gentile 
people. Here we see in this section two in verse 13, these tru- the truths that uh, make a person a Christian. You see a little progression there in verse 13. Look at first. It says, you hear the gospel of your salvation in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. Now this is important. This is a must when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, right? Telling people the good news of Christ. The good news needs to be heard, right? That, that, that's a very important part of this. Paul would speak of this in Romans, in Romans uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 14 through 15. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's important for us to remember, we talk about this a lot from the pulpit. We have a Sunday school class on evangelism right now. It is good to share the gospel message with people. I want to encourage you with this, though. It's not good enough just to tell them your story. Your story doesn't save anybody. You don't save anybody, right? Jesus saves. And so it's important for us as Christians to know the gospel message and to share with them what God has done through his son, Jesus, and let the power of that message impact people's hearts. Not the power of my story, because we know, right? I hope that you will say, I hope you will agree to this. In, in, this, in my story, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> in my story, I'm the sinner. I'm the wretched one. I'm horrible, right? I am, not, I am not the good one. In my story as a Christian, God is the best news in it because he interjected. He came in. He sent his son. He convicted me of sin. And so it's important for us to remember that people need to hear the gospel in order for them to be saved. Not other things. The gospel message needs to be shared with them. But then it went on. It wasn't just that, right? You hear the word, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So there needs to be belief in the gospel of salvation. So after hearing the gospel, one must believe in the gospel, right? They, they must believe in it. And so again, this is why it's so important for us to get the gospel correct. We talked about this as we went through 2 Corinthians. The gospel is simple. What we just sung together was simple. It's a very simple message. In Corinthians, Paul would say it this way, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you want to know the gospel? As simple as we can get it, it's the person, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? Now you say, well, Pastor Tim, there's a lot more to it. I would agree. There's, there's a lot more that you can teach someone, that you can, that you can talk to them about when it comes to the gospel. But the, but the bare facts is this. There was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and he lived a perfect life, and he died for you. Do you believe that? If you struggle with that, if you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. If you say, I don't know, that seems, I think it's just more spiritual, Pastor Tim. No. A man lived and he died, and he died in your place. Do you believe that? That's the gospel message. You say, but I feel like when I'm sharing that story with someone, I need to fancy it up. I need to make it relevant for today. No, no, because then you're telling your story, right? Then you're telling our story here. His story needs to be told, and God works through the power of his story, of what Jesus has done. 
And then we trust that God will work in their life to draw people to himself to believe that message. And so there has to be a belief. And so as we sit here today as Christians and you say, I'm a Christian, well, one of those things then is you believe this to be true wholeheartedly. You put all of your your chips on Jesus. I believe in him wholeheartedly. My salvation is found in him. And that's where we go to next, right? In verse 13. And believed in him. That all of this, all of this is about him. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done, right? Everything we have, everything we are as Christians is through Christ, is through Jesus and nothing else, nothing else at all. It's what he has done for us, his strength, his power. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 22, we're reminded of this by Paul again. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This needs to be on the forefront of our mind as Christians. Everything we are, everything we have, absolutely everything is because of Christ and his great grace in our life and in the ministry that he gives us and all these things, it is is because of him. Last week, I snuck in here on Sunday. I sat up there in the balcony and... It was good to hear the word of God from Pastor Scott. But before then, I had a magazine. It was an SBC magazine, and they were talking about some of our history. I'm going to be honest, it was kind of hard to read that magazine. I was getting kind of frustrated because the magazine was talking about why Southern Baptists got so big, why our denomination got so big. And they were like, well, we started to think of it more of like business. We started to think about more marketing. We started to do more strategies. We started to come up with things of like, 75 million and 75, or all these other little catchy phrases, and they were attributing great success, it seemed, to those things. That was frustrating for me to read that as an SBC pastor, because any success that we have as Southern Baptists or as Christians in general is because of him. It's not because of some dumb, catchy slogan. If I'm catching people by a catchy slogan, I'm not catching them for the sake of the gospel. I'm catching them for the sake of marketing and slogans. I'm catching them again by my story, by my intellect. Now, I'm not saying those are necessarily a bad thing always. But when we start hanging our hat on it, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing. All we are is because of him. That's it. We, we don't have anywhere else to stand. And that's a big statement. Why? Because that means... No matter the color of a person's skin, no matter the amount of money somebody may have, no matter the state of somebody's health, or no matter how worthy we think somebody is to society to help us, has no bearing on being in Christ at all. None of that has any bearing on being in Christ at all. 
It's on him. It's on him and his salvation. Those he saves. Again, we have to remember that. One of the, one of the words I wrote in here, I didn't say it because you hear it a lot right now as pastors, but this whole nationalism thing that's going around. Uh, many churches are losing numbers. Why? Because of Christian nationalism and pride in America. And I love being American. I, I don't want to live anywhere else. I guess I have the right to live somewhere else if I want, and I guess I would if I wanted to, but I don't. I love being American. I love all that stuff, so don't, don't accuse me of that. But my hope isn't in this country. My hope isn't in any person in this country. When I was laying sick a couple weeks ago thinking, you know what, let's just die. I'm just ready. This, is, this stinks. Let's just, let's just die. Never once thought of a man or a woman in this country. My mind went to Christ. I'm okay. When I talk to other faithful Christians who I know are going through battles, they are going through battles, health battles, with serious, serious ramifications to things. They never say, well, when I go under that knife, my president will save me. My senator will save me. My wife will save me. My kids, you know, I got such good kids. That's going to get me through. Good faithful Christians always say, if I don't wake up, I'll be present with the Lord. I'll be present with him. And it's all because of him, right? That, that's what our hope lies. And that's the truth that the gospel gives us is that it's about Christ. And the same faith that saved the Old Testament saved, saints is the same faith saving us today. It's about him. It's about the Messiah. Faith in God's promises of salvation through the lamb. Again, we could go to Romans 4, 13 to 17. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Of faith. Faith in Christ, right? Faith in believing in him and the truth of God's word and what he gives us there. Well, we got to move on. At the end of verse 13, it says, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I want to real quickly this morning go through some of the work of the Holy Spirit because we've talked about God's role, the God, the Father, his role in salvation. Remember when we looked in verses three, we talked about election. We talked about some predestination stuff. We talked about some things of the Father. We've talked extensively about the work of the Son, and we'll do that the next couple weeks as we talk about Easter together. We've talked about Jesus and what has he done in the work of our salvation. But one of the, we haven't talked much about the Holy Spirit. And here, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. And so what is the work that the Holy Spirit does in our salvation? Well, first, again, I'm going to try to go through this quickly. Uh, first and foremost, he convinces us of our sin and our misery. John chapter 16, verse 8 Jesus says, and when he comes, talking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You and I both need to realize that without God revealing sin to us or to another person, they never will repent. They're not going to do that unless the Holy Spirit helps them to see that they are sinners. I mean, just, just dealing that with people on an individual basis, dealing, dealing with that some with Christians who believe that, it's hard sometimes to convince them, did you know you might be wrong? Absolutely not. It's not that's not even possible. I mean, Christians struggle with that. Go try to tell a lost person 
hey, you know the life that you're living just leads to destruction. You can't convince them of that. I, I cannot convince them of that. That is a work of God in their life. And Jesus tells us that it's the Holy Spirit who would do that. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us. Maybe a good reminder for us is Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. One of the worst bits of advice we can give people is trust your heart because the heart is wicked. The heart is evil. If you've been a Christian very long and actually dealing with your sin, you realize the depth of your wickedness in your heart because I know for me how often selfishness leads the way or pride leads the way or laziness can lead the way. And what is that? It's, it's the wickedness of my heart. And I'm thankful that God has revealed that to me and helps me to see that and, and works on that. But only God can search our heart. We cannot do it ourselves because of the wickedness that is in it. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit does this for us. He actually fulfills Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, that says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is what the Holy Spirit does when he convicts us of our sin and helps us to see our sin. He's circumcising our heart so that we can see it and know it and believe it. Second thing, the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Ephesians uh, chapter one that we'll get to, I don't know if we will next week, maybe next week, or no, in a few weeks after Easter. Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, see, look what it says. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, right? Enlightens our minds to the knowledge of Christ. That's why, that's why many of you in here who are Christians, you would say something like this. How do they not get it? It seems so simple. How, how could they not just fall on their face before God when I'm talking to them and telling them the good news of the gospel? I'm telling them this great thing. How can they not get it? Are they just ignorant? Yeah, because the Holy Spirit hasn't opened their eyes to see it. The Holy Spirit hasn't enlightened them at this point. It goes on. The Holy Spirit also renews our will. We see this in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a work of God. He allows us to, to, to do his will, but he does that, not me. He does that. He allows me to be able to be faithful. He allows me to be able to follow, to read, to understand, to know, to grow. This is a work of the Holy Spirit that he does in our life. But then also we see that the Holy Spirit persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you, but this is where the truth is found. John 6, 44 to 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And then I got some more for this section. 
Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then lastly in John 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He persuades. He enables. It's interesting. When Jesus talks there and he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But don't worry. One day I'll give you guys pastors. One day I'll give you guys parents who will help explain it to you. One day a friend will come and talk to you at lunch and share with you, and then you'll be able to understand it. That's, that's not what's said, right? Jesus says, you can't bear it now, but there's one who is coming, the Holy Spirit, and he will work in your life. He will enable you to understand and to embrace the truth. And catch this, everything he says is about me, right? Everything he says is mine. Right? All that the Father has is mine. All that mine is the Father's. And the Holy Spirit will not direct you in any direction other than to me. That is it. So that's one of the problems when you start hearing people talk about visions and different things. And it's not directing to Jesus, but it's directing to something else. It's directing to these other things. Saying, well, then that's not of the Holy Spirit. Because the, the Holy Spirit only points to Christ all the time. Every day, every second. Well, then what we see here, lastly, is what the Holy Spirit does, is he guarantees us our inheritance, seals us and guarantees us. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end, we have no need to fear losing the Holy Spirit. We have no need to fear losing our salvation. Why? Because when the stamp of guarantee was put on, my name isn't anywhere on it. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the sealer. He's the guarantee, and I can't break that. I, I can't break that seal. That's, it makes me think of in Revelation. Who will break the seal? Right? Who's going to do it? And then one who looks as a slain lamb comes to break. Who's that? That's Jesus. That's not Tim who breaks the seal. It's not you who breaks the seal. It's God who breaks the seal. He's also the guarantor of it. And so what is this inheritance then that we will receive? We've talked about this some but the promise that we'll be with God, our Father, forever, united in the heavens and the earth being united together. When everything is put back how it's supposed to be before sin, the new heavens and the new earth, we're promised this. We're promised that all things will be at the feet of Jesus. It'll be his footstool. We're promised that we will be co-heirs with Jesus. An interesting fact, maybe you don't think about much, but in 1 Corinthians, it actually says we will judge the angels along with Jesus ourselves. The inheritance that we are promised is so great. And again, it's not because of my doing. It's because of the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's what gets me to the end of verse 14, because it's interesting. Verse 3, this sentence started with, praise be to God. In verse 12, he said, to, the, to be to the praise of his glory. And now at the end, in verse 14, in this sentence, he ends again with, to the praise of his glory. Paul has just walked us through all that God has done because he loves us. God the Father chose you. 
God the Son died for you. God the Holy Spirit has sealed you forever. He walked through all these great things that God has done. And the way he finishes this sentence is by saying that why has all this been done? For the praise of his glory. That's why everything has been done. Not for my glory. It doesn't say all this has been done because of loving you, because of how great you are, because of how great this is. No, all that God has done is for the praise of his glory. So when, when God saves somebody, when we, when we see that happen, why, why did God save that person? For the praise of his glory, because of his great grace. So then the question comes up in my mind, and I hope it comes up in your mind, how then as a Christian can I live up to this? How can I live up to being for the praise of his glory? Think about that. I have, I have to be to the praise of his glory, the one who made all things. That seems like a big standard to live up to. I've been at, I've been at a lot of sporting events lately, and I see a lot of kids who the weight that the parents put on them is the kid is supposed to be to the praise of their glory. When the kid dribbles the ball off his foot and it goes out of bounds, embarrasses the parents to death. And the, and the kids feel that weight, right? Just this weight. And maybe as a Christian, we, we feel this weight. Like, I got I to gotta live up to this. Like, God, how can I live to the praise of your glory? Well, Paul just walked us through how we live up to it. We understand that we've done nothing for it. He's done it all. He's elevated me to the status of being to the praise of his glory. I didn't climb that ladder. I didn't walk that path. I didn't do that. He, he has done that in my place. Jesus walked that path for me. He took that path to the cross. He, he died and he, he rose again. And that is to the praise of his glory. And I've said this many times, so that when God looks and he sees you, he doesn't see Tim. He doesn't see, put your name in there. As a Christian, he sees his son. And he sees the work that his son did, and he sees the perfection of it, and it is to the praise of his glory. And so because of that, as a Christian, you can live up to that standard. Every day, when you wake up, and you live your life, and you go off to school as a kid, and you study, and you do the things that you need to do, and you respect your teachers, you do whatever, you, you live your life, and you go home as a kid, and you honor your parents the best that you can, you play in the backyard, or do whatever you do. Can I tell you this? We're doing that to the praise of his glory. When you go to work as a Christian, when you Strive to work the hardest you can when you try to be the best that you can be. You do that. You want to be because we want to obey. God calls us to obey. So we do our best to obey. We do these things. You're doing that to the praise of his glory. It is glorifying him. Don't set up a thing in your life where it's, this is how I glorify God. This is how I live my life. That doesn't exist. Because maybe today you think, I'm glorifying God by being here. You are. But it's no different than you glorifying God by being a husband, being a wife, being faithful to the word of God each and every day. 
That is how we glorify him. I know for me, that's a big deal. Because I do start to set up, how can I please him? You know, I, I grew up in a culture with, <clears throat> with the sports world of you had to please people. You have to please your coach if you want to get playing time. You know, you, you got to please your teachers if they're going to like you, help you out. You got to please everything. And so when I read something like this to the praise of his glory, I think, well, then how can I please him? And I'm thankful to find out he's pleased through his son who has stamped me and sealed me with the Holy Spirit. Nothing more, nothing less. And so I get to strive to honor him the best I can, knowing that his love for me will never be gone. Just like it wasn't for the Jewish people. Never left him. It's the same for me. Because I'm found in Abraham by faith. The same faith that Abraham has is the same faith that Tim has. So God loves me and cares for me. I want to end with this, Colossians 3, 17. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's our task, to the praise of his glory and to the praise of his grace. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. God, there's a lot here in this section of 3 through 14. God, I thank you how it is life-giving. God, for those of us this morning who can say, we know that the Holy Spirit has shown us our sin. We know that the Holy Spirit has enabled us to see the truth of your word. We know that we believe this truth by faith. God, for those of us this morning, I pray that we would be to the praise of your glory each and every day. God, help us to strive to honor you in everything we say and do, how we interact with neighbors, how we interact with our family. God, how we interact with society as a whole. God, that the fruits of the Spirit would bear witness in our life, that people would see that, that we would be loving, kind, joyful, patient, all these things. God, we all know as we sit here today that we have so much to work on in our life. We're not perfect. As was mentioned earlier in the service, we, we sin all the time. But God, yet we know as believers that we still are to the praise of your glory because of Jesus and the finished work that he accomplished. It's all in him, by him, through him, for him. So God, this morning we want to praise you how we should. I know we're going to sing a song here at the end. But God, I pray that we would respond to your word in a way that is appropriate. God, maybe for some, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit this morning for the first time is opening the eyes of somebody to your truth. God, I, I pray that you would continue to work in their life. Maybe they would use this time to speak to you and just trust in you. Or maybe they have questions. I'd love to talk to them this morning. God, for those who are Christians, maybe it is just a time of praise, a time of adoration, of thinking about all that you have done in their life. God, maybe, maybe there's people here this morning who are just struggling, health issues, maybe financial issues, maybe, I don't know, whatever it is, but maybe, maybe this morning you've let the truth of your word just sink into their heart to, to give them some peace and some joy in the midst of troubles. And God, I pray that they would praise you and honor you. God, you are very good to us. That word gets watered down good. 
you are the definition of good. So this morning, we want to praise you the best that we can. And so help us as we sing this last song to sing the words and believe them and that they would be directed to you and to you only. We praise you now and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.